Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter, Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. How are you, Jill? Good. It feels like it's been a long time since I've been on this show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, you've been traveling all over and doing glossy events and stuff, but we are happy to have you back. Um, This week, we're going to be talking about a bunch of the recent luxury earnings reports that came out over the last couple of weeks and all of the weirdness happening in the luxury market. Some of the biggest players are not doing so well, but then others are, and a bunch of crazy stuff happening there. Um, We're also going to talk about Steve Madden acquiring Almost Famous, which happened earlier this week. And then finally, we're going to bring in Glossy's new West Coast correspondent, Lexi Lebsack, who's going to talk about um, Prop 65 lawsuits and how that's forcing some indie beauty brands to shudder and all the craziness happening there. Um, But yeah, this is going to be a fun episode. Jill, thank you for being here. Let's start with the luxury section. So like I said, it's been a really weird time in the luxury space. Um, There's been a lot of earnings recently. Um, and after several years of just humongous gains for these luxury brands, I feel like we're in the middle of kind of a slowdown. Um, even some of the biggest companies like LVMH had its lowest earnings of the year, I think this, uh, like two weeks ago, maybe where the revenue was only up 1%, which is positive, but it's not nearly as much as kind of that company has been seeing. Caring had their earnings this week and that one was even worse. I think their sales dropped like 9% in the last quarter. Um, But then at the same time, there's companies like Hermes and Xenia, which are both up like 16% and 20% respectively. So um, definitely luxury seems to be in kind of a weird space. There's lots of factors affecting them, but also some of those companies are still kind of seeing the same big growth percentages that we've seen over the last three years. So it's not affecting everybody equally. Um, I have some thoughts on what some of those factors are, but Joe, why don't you go first? What's your take on what's happening with the the big luxury brands? I mean, I think, tell me if you agree, that it, there are some of the brands that are thriving according to this week's earnings are um, more resilient. They're not reliant on the aspirational shopper. Um, and I mean, we, t- we roll our eyes when people say quiet luxury at this point because it's been... Uh, talked about to death. You just did a story on watches, quiet luxury coming for watches that like swept the nation. And um, it's still a buzzy topic and it's still um, a hot seller. And we we talk about those things are less, um, they're not trendy. They're not going to come in and out of style, but more so it's going, it's catering to that top 1%, top shopper. Um, like I said, that's not affected by ups and downs in the market. But um, I don't know. We, we'll, we can talk about where this is going. But I just, we just had a leaders dinner this week um, in LA. It was with beauty and wellness leaders. And the way that they were talking, they didn't say it directly, but um, basically they want to align themselves with other luxury uh brands or products or anyway, there was a lot of talk among the beauty community community about wanting to get into Erwan, which is basically like that customer is not being affected if they're buying a pack of fruit for $50 or whatever it is. So, um, and somebody's in there and, and very excited and everybody's like, Ooh, talk to me who to talk to. <laughs> um, and I, I've been seeing a lot. Bergdorf Goodman is always, um, doing exciting, fun things. But there was recently a Givenchy launch and an Armani launch and a lot of these exclusive capsule lines coming to the brand. So I wonder, I'm going to dig in this week and see what the de- if there's you know more demand. Wholesale is cutting across various channels um, because they're also seeing 
impacts. But are these high, high-end retailers um, coming up and and high demand and it's it's doing it's affecting them well. So anyway, lots going on here, but no surprise about Zania and Hermes um, and who else? Cuccinelli. Mm-hmm. Uh, but wow, the, the, the difference between carrying an LVMH and what's happening there versus what's happening with these other guys is compelling and interesting. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think you raise a bunch of good points. I mean, I think it's pretty... Um, so for one thing, Caring obviously has some some specific stuff that's going on. They're in the middle of a leadership change at Gucci. Uh, the new creative director, Sabado Sarno, just had his first collection, which I think was well-received, but he's still it's still new. So like they're kind of in a transition phase. That could explain some of it. There's, there's you know, specific stuff that's going on, but you're right, it is a pretty stark difference between them and LVMH. Um, I also think you're right to say that as annoying as the term quiet luxury might be, it's pretty obvious that... When Xenia is doing really well, when Cuccinelli is doing really well, when Hermes is doing really well, that's like, you know, those are brands that are definitive quiet luxury brands. Okay, I don't remember where Saint Laurent fits into Caring's thing, but um, Saint Laurent, I feel like, is also kind of quiet luxury-ish. I don't know. Do you agree if Saint Laurent is quiet luxury? I, I don't I know. Like, don't. what? don't. A- Maybe a little bit too edgy, but I yeah. do. Go ahead. Like, what's a care? Well, what's a Caring brand? Bottega. That is? I would uh, think Bottega, like, maybe. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they so I know that Caring is um had they have this other luxury division. Literally it's called Other Luxury, which doesn't include Gucci, but it does include brands like Balenciaga. And that was down even more than nine percent, down like fifteen percent. Um I know Balenciaga's been a little bit under the radar recently, kind of like laying low. Um, but so that could explain some of that. Um but yeah, it definitely feels like the quiet luxury thing is a uh you know, a real factor in which luxury companies are continuing to do well. Um, I guess maybe the ones that are a little more trend-driven might be more reliant on the aspirational customers. And when inflation is kind of going through the roof, uh, I think a lot of the luxury brands are missing those uh, aspirational customers. They're just not there anymore. Um, You mentioned the retailers. I was just looking into Neiman Marcus this week, and they have been pretty definitive that, like, they're focusing on the highest-end brands and the highest-end customers because that's where they get, like, I think 40% of their volume is driven by 2% of their customers. So there's this extreme upper echelon of consumer that I think is driving whatever remains of the growth for a lot of these luxury companies. Um, I don't know if that's going to be enough to like maintain them through the the downturn, through the slow period of luxury that we seem to be in. And I don't know how long that's going to last. Um, but yeah, that's my thought. Yeah. And it's a big transitional period. So who's to say if these trends are going to stick? Um, like you said, Gucci has a new designer. Their revenue was down 14%. It's more than half of Caring's business. It's a big deal. Um, and the collection had mixed reviews, I would say. Um, but Caring at the same time, they're shuffling leadership. They're, they have this new beauty division. They have a new McQueen designer. Like so much is happening. Um, so it's like, they better get it together. And they're showing that they're actively trying. And then on the LVMH side, um, Laura Piana, and they've got Lueve, um, they do have some um, quiet luxury brands. And those brands did perform better than the logoed out Louis Vuitton and Dior. Um, so anyway, TBD, Phoebe Philo, we know is coming next week. Hey, so That's it's true. good timing for her. And, um, but, and it's kind of, 
transitional for everybody because even in the brands that were thriving, um, I think Hermes, I think um, potentially it was at Zegna or Cuccinelli, but they they mentioned the tensions in the Middle East and that's a huge market for luxury and how um, that could also impact their future sales. So they're not like, some of them are raising projections, but there's not a lot of excitement about what's to come in luxury, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. You So you mentioned the Middle East. I was going to say, I feel like there's uh, kind of a, a convergence of several factors that are affecting luxury right now. There's inflation, which is eating away at the aspirational customer. There's interest rate hikes, which I think are adding to the expenses for the luxury brands, um, which is affecting their kind of like profits. Uh, there's geopolitical stuff in Ukraine and in Gaza that I think plays a big role. And then finally, there's also kind of general economic slowdown in China happening. And it's all like at the same time. So um, the fact that all of that is happening and LVMH is still up 1%, even though it's, you know, slower than they probably would like, I feel like is a good sign that they're, they're kind of resilient, but I, I definitely see, you know, when you lay out all the factors like that, it's, uh, surprising that they're doing as well as they are. Yeah. And their fashion and leather goods was up 9%, which is pretty good. Um, great. Like you said, um, considering. But also, I think it'll play into our next topic when we get there. Um, they have a more diverse business model or yes. um, businesses under their, umbre- their umbrella. So um, that no doubt helped as well. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of that, let's let's jump into our second topic, which is Steve Madden acquiring uh, Almost Famous this week. Um, the acquisition was for $52 million, and Almost Famous has around $160 million in annual revenue. Um they have actually worked together before and have worked together for the last year. Almost Famous, which is an apparel and denim kind of brand. They sell at Macy's and Kohl's and places like that. So kind of in the same world as Steve Madden anyway. Um, but Almost Famous is also the official licensee of Steve Madden's apparel brand, which is called Madden NYC. They've worked together for a year. And clearly, uh, Steve Madden seems to be pretty happy with that since they are now buying the company. Um it seems obvious to me that it's a, clearly a move to keep increasing their apparel revenue and their non-footwear, um, you know, stuff. They they've done that for a while. I look back at their most recent earnings call from I think it was August, and the leadership was talking a lot about wanting to expand into new categories, apparel and handbags. I think were called out specifically, but maybe others too. Um, yeah, I think that seems like a smart move for diversification reasons. Uh, what do you think, Joe? Yeah, I think they got it for a steal, don't you think? They acquired it for $52 million and they do $163 million <laughs> in annual revenue. Yeah. Wow. Um, I wasn't familiar with all, Almost Famous. I looked it up and I had high hopes that it would look like the movie Almost Famous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, more trend-driven. Um, you know, I'm sure it says something about, despite their high, good revenue, um, the state of the business. And um, when we talked about wholesale cutting orders, like they have a large, almost famous has a large private label business. So um, maybe there's something going on there. Maybe it was desperate times. I also didn't realize, I didn't recall, I heard when the news happened that Steve Madden has a lot of brands under its umbrella, including Betsy Johnson. We used to cover mm-hmm. greats a lot. It owns greats now. Um, trying mm-hmm. to think of others, but yeah, it's Dolce Vita. It's a popular brand, like um, contemporary price point. So um, it's smart. I would say that they're diversifying. I would, and this isn't brand new. I think their apparel line launched in twenty twenty two. It seems like they've had it longer, um, but yeah, I would just say you know. 
I always, I always bring back my sexy stylist days, but I used to do a lot with like Baker's shoes in St. Louis and they were a big mall footwear brand. And I wouldn't say, you know, it wasn't diverse. There was shoes and maybe like you see at Aldo, which I was trying to Mm -hmm. dig and find out how they're doing because that's a competitor. Um, But there's like the one rack with a couple of uh, jewelry items. There's some handbags, but going into apparel is interesting and yeah. yeah, something to watch. Go ahead. Well, one thing I thought was interesting is that I, I believe the the private label apparel brand that they were doing with Almost Famous started in 2022. I'm not sure if that's the first bit of apparel they've ever done, um, but I was looking through their earnings and I think it was last quarter, um, apparel was a little less than half of the revenue that footwear makes. I think footwear was like 230 million and apparel was like almost 80 million, which is not that small. I mean, obviously footwear is still like their main thing, but that's that's pretty big for how short they've been doing it. Again, maybe they they have been doing apparel for longer. I, I only know of the almost famous uh, collab, basically, not collab, licensing kind of thing from the last year. So it, it clearly like there's uh, a lot of momentum behind that if it's grown that much in that short of time. Agree. Yeah, I think it has. And I was trying to, I was also thinking, you know, what are some other sneaker footwear brands that have launched apparel and maybe that they have seen success and that's um, maybe their entry into becoming more of a lifestyle brand. Um, (laughs) It always comes to mind because you've mentioned it a lot on this podcast is like all birds who tried to do it. And that's more, you hear it more on the activewear side and you weren't a fan of the apparel (laughs) and we know that crumbled um, and they're, they're focusing on footwear. Um, But I don't know of others actually. And um, but I, it did also call to mind the pandemic times and who's buying shoes and how this is safeguarding them outside of, I mean, that is tied to diversification for sure. Yeah, de- yeah, definitely. And uh, diversification in general seems like something a lot of um, companies are interested in right now. When I was l- digging into luxury earnings reports for our first topic, I was remembering that Montclair uh recently has kind of been trying to branch out away from just big puffy winter coats, especially as like the planet is getting hotter, (laughs) uh, which is probably a smart reason to do it. But I think just in general, like product and category diversification is typically a smart move. It it makes it a little easier to weather unexpected changes. Like when the pandemic happened and suddenly people didn't want evening gowns or whatever, it probably helped to not only be selling evening gowns or, um, you know, other kinds of similar reasons. And then there's also a, from a kind of fashion perspective, we've talked about designer brands wanting to have a head to toe look and wanting to kind of like be able to dress someone in entirely this one brand. And so for Steve Madden, I know they're not quite a designer brand maybe, but um, the idea that you could be wearing all Steve Madden, I don't know, maybe that was part of the the motivation there too. For sure. Another, another one of their, their competitors, um, Skechers, launched mm-hmm. apparel back in 2018 and there it seems like they're trying to uh attract uh I don't know I wouldn't say fashion customer they're all fashion maybe a little bit of a high end cuz higher end customer they mm-hmm. had a collab with Diane von Furstenberg in February um so I don't know I mean I feel like that could help Steve Madden and getting the word out about <laughs> that they even sell clothes cuz I was just poking around and didn't know um and you know, it's affordable, it's on trend. I don't know that it has a lot of differentiators right now um, than what's out there. Almost Famous only has 12.5 thousand Instagram followers. It seems like it's 
Yeah, people aren't going to shop it just for the name, I would say. Yeah, it's kind of under the radar. And I think it does a lot of private label stuff. Um, so yeah, well, I mean, we'll see if they're going to keep, you mentioned Steve Madden has a lot of brands that it owns now that we'll see if they keep acquiring stuff, especially cheap like that. I, you know, maybe they decide that it's worth it to just get a lot of names under the belt. Um, cool. Let's move on to our final topic. I'm going to welcome, uh, I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, Glossy has a new West Coast resp- correspondent, Lexi Lebsack. Lexi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very excited to have you on your first Glossy podcast and that it's my podcast that you get to be on. I'm sure you will be featured on the Glossy Beauty podcast in the future. We'll have you back for more Week in Review too. But uh, yeah, I'm excited that you're here. So you wrote your first story for Glossy. I think it published earlier this week, um, which I read and really liked it. And um, it's it's really interesting. It's about Prop 65, um, which I'll let you explain more about. But I just wanted to have you on and talk a little bit about that story because I just thought it was great. So what is Prop 65 and what was kind of the thrust of your story? Yeah, well, thanks. I'm so happy to be here and talking about it. Um, yeah, so this story actually really surprised me because for anyone who lives in California or has spent time out here, there are Prop 65 warnings on just about everything. So anytime you walk into a parking garage or an office building on the back of consumer goods, you're going to see these signs and labels and stickers that say Prop 65 warnings. And it's basically a warning that you might come into contact with a chemical known to the state of California to cause a whole you know, list of health problems. And So this isn't really a new issue by any means. Um, Prop 65 goes back to the California Safe Drinking Water and Toxic Enforcement Act of 1986. And it's been in effect since 1988. So not a new new issue at all. But on the surface, I think the beauty industry is doing really, really well. But at the same time, there's this issue that's happening where beauty brands are closing pretty rapidly. So you'll have a beauty brand who's you know, open for many, many years. And then all of a sudden you see an Instagram image about them shuttering and the beauty industry is doing so well. So I was really wondering what's going on with some of these brands. And some of the issues that we found are very similar to the things that we're reporting on at Glossy all the time. So uh, increased uh, customer acquisition costs, soaring interest rates, all of this stuff that we already know. But people started telling me about a really unexpected issue, which is that they're coming up against lawsuits that are really acting as the nail in the coffin for the brand. And I talked to one founder who was the founder of a very well-known omni-channel clean beauty brand that garnered headlines earlier this year when it shuttered. And, you know, I thought that they were doing so well. So I was like, you know, what happened? What's going on? And uh, basically she got hit with a Prop 65 violation and she was totally Mm -hmm. unaware that that was going to happen, that it was even possible. And it was because she had titanium dioxide in her products. And it's a bit confusing for beauty brands because... The whole point of Prop 65 is to warn consumers about possible exposure to chemicals. Now, there's 900 chemicals on this Prop 65 list, and there's more added annually. So it started with only 235 chemicals. And you find things on here like phthalates and PFOs, PFAS, and even UV filters like titanium dioxide. And the confusing thing, I think, for brands is that something like titanium dioxide is FDA approved for makeup, and it's also commonly found in sunscreen. But the Office of the Environmental Health 
hazard assessment in California finds that titanium dioxide in airborne unbound particles can actually be dangerous for your health. And the crazy thing about Prop 65 that I don't think that many people saw coming is that because California doesn't have the resources to actually enforce all of its laws, they allow basically anyone to sue for a violation. Mm. So, yeah, which is, which is uh, <laughs> you know, obviously not great um, for some of these brands who are unaware that they could be breaking one of the rules. So... Basically, there are all of these groups that have been put together and they're, you know, from individual lawyers and firms in California that are pursuing these cases. And what I found happening is basically one of these groups, which often has a very environmental sounding name like Clean Product Advocates or Ecological Alliance, they find these brands that they think might be breaking the rules And they send them letters, a 60-day notice, saying that if they don't either slap one of these Prop 65 labels on the back of their products, or if they don't reformulate, then they are potentially going to be sued. The problem here is that the majority of the brands that I spoke to don't have the resources to necessarily defend themselves against these kind of actions. And these groups are going after brands left and right. So just in the last few months, I found Prop 65 notices had gone out to brands like Smashbox, Victoria Beckham Beauty, Mob Beauty, RMS, Jones Road, Pat McGrath. It just kind of goes on and on and on. And then I continued to dig and I found that last year, the same group that sent all of those letters I just mentioned also had lawsuits against the cream shop, Too Faced Cosmetics, Forma Brands, Physicians Formula, Urban Decay, Mineral Fusion, all of these brands. So they're basically being told that they either have to reformulate or they have to slap a label on the back of them. And there are so many expenses that go along with this that it's really hurting smaller brands. So I have a couple of questions that that came to me while I was reading the story and also while you're talking. So the okay, so the groups that are filing these lawsuits, if you know, if the brand gets, you know, has to settle for $10 million or whatever. Do they pay the group that sued them or do they pay the state of California? So that's actually one of the craziest parts in this, because when you look at that, this, you think, OK, well, you know, California is at least making a lot of money, I guess, on these sort of things. And maybe it's going into something that helps the you know actual drinking water and our environment and stuff. But the funny thing is, is that when you look at some of the most recent data available, so that's in 2019, there were 898 businesses that paid a total of 29 million to settle Proposition 65 claims against them. This is up from 11 million in 2000 and 13 million in 2010. But the lion's share, so this is 24 million of the 29 million went directly into the plaintiff lawyer's pockets while California's cut was only 2.7 million. So it's really these groups that are making a ton of money. That, yeah, that is a very surprising arrangement that that leads to. Um, Okay, my other question is, uh, I got the sense from reading the story that some of these brands, um, you know, you mentioned one, I think you mentioned one brand like didn't know that they had this whatever chemical that was... um, uh, a violation of Prop 65 in their their product. And and then some of the others, I got the sense that a lot of them just felt like the uh, the law itself was kind of unfair and that they should be expected to 
know what's in their product and stuff. And that struck me as kind of odd. I'm like, shouldn't you shouldn't you know what's in your own product before you sell it? And it as a complete outsider who has no experience with this, it doesn't it seems to me like it would be pretty common sense to before you start selling something, look what's in it, see if any of these chemicals or or formulas are on the list and then put the label if needed. Why did you get a sense from talking to those some brands some of those brands of why they didn't do it in the first place or how they ended up in that situation? Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a really great, great question. Um, so one of the brands that I spoke to, she was unaware that the chemical was in the product that she was selling. And um, it was actually like an accessory. It was like a gift with purchase accessory in like a bundle pack. And it was a product that you know, is accessory. It doesn't go on your skin or anything, but um, she had it made overseas and she was not aware that it had a chemical that, it, while not illegal, um, you know, has to be, you have to give a warning, the Prop 65 warning saying that, you know, we believe in California, this could cause a health risk. So um, I think that looking back on it, she realizes that she probably was a little bit negligent and should have asked a lot more questions from her vendor. And I think that this is a very common problem, especially with something like a gift with purchase item. Um, when you're getting it overseas, I think that it's, you know, it's really tough to be on top of these kind of regulations. And there are also 900 chemicals on this list. And every year they add more chemicals. And when a chemical is added, a brand has one year to basically either take it out of their products or put a label on it, warning consumers about it. So I think that she sort of learned a really big lesson there. Um, and the other founder that I featured really um, extensively through this, I think that it was a bit confusing because titanium dioxide, so, and just to go back for a second, titanium dioxide is the one ingredient that's really driving this whole issue right now. So all of the brands that got um, warning, warning letters that I mentioned earlier, and the brands that were sued, um, a lot of this is about titanium dioxide. And I think it's confusing because titanium dioxide is FDA approved as a colorant and makeup. It's FDA approved even in some food items. And it's also in tons of sunscreens. So it's an ingredient we see all the time. And also it's an ingredient that comes from, you know, um, a more natural place. It's not some chemical with a thousand letters in it that people sort of like maybe will flag someone. Um, and Obviously, titanium dioxide is allowed in products, but it's very specific in Prop 65 that it's airborne, unbound particles of yes. respiral size. So basically, I mean, in short, it's a lot of pressed eyeshadows, a lot of pressed powders, a lot of bronzers, a lot of highlighters. And that's because in theory, the, the particles can get into the air when you have a little bit of fallout when you're applying the product. Now, this founder specifically feels that she was unfairly targeted. She feels like it's completely crazy that people are getting in trouble for titanium dioxide. And she has some theories about how they're sort of using a scientist in a lab to break down the product and sort of find things that she doesn't necessarily feel are fair. However, it really is a complicated issue because titanium dioxide is not coming out of products. No one's going to start pulling these out of the products because it's an, it's an important ingredient for a lot of formulations. And brands also don't want to necessarily slap a label on the back of their clean makeup product that says, hey, California thinks this might cause you some health problems. So I think that they're just sort of in this like funny space where big brands are certainly not going to slap a cancer label on the back of their clean makeup. 
Um, and they're just sort of, from what I can see, taking these hits as a line in their PL. But the indie brands are really in a tough spot because, you know, what are they supposed to do? Yeah. So, okay, you kind of addressed what, what was going to be my final question, which is like, if I was the brand and my options were put this label on or possibly pay tens or hundreds of millions in legal fees and fines and stuff, I guess I would just go with the label. But as you said, having a big label that says this product will give you cancer is not like not great for, you know, the image of the brand. Um, so yeah, I, I totally see how that's kind of a tough situation for them to be in. Um, okay, last thing I want to ask you, Lexi, and this is the great thing about this podcast is you can give like uh, a little bit more of your own opinion on this situation. Um, do you do you get a sense that this is uh, that the brands need to just kind of suck it up and like be better and you know pay better attention to what they're putting into their product and be more careful in following the law, or do you think this is something that uh, is worth? changing in terms of how the law is enforced. Certainly, I think the idea of kind of letting people do vigilante justice <laughs> on the brands that may be violating, I think is maybe a kind of a crazy approach. Um, but I don't know. You, let me let me hear your thought on it. Sure. Um, oh, man, that's such a tough question. You know, I really toggle back and forth because I think that regulation can be very important. And especially with products that you're eating, that you're putting on your skin that are, you know, so so important. Um, I think it is really important, but I sort of also feel really sympathetic to the brands because I think that they feel like they've really been put through the ringer with these, you know, like you call them, you know, they're, they're citizen prosecutors. And I spoke to one founder who felt like they were harassing and, you know, contacting the, her employees and just making life really, really challenging for her. And, um, and so I don't know. It's like I do believe that products should be safe and they should be free of ingredients. But it's also a really tough. It's a tough thing. I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. That's a terrible answer. No, that's but not. I, no, that's not know. a terrible I, answer. That's a great answer. I wanted your kind of honest feeling on it. I mean, I think I feel the same as you. Uh, I often feel. I mean, I've talked about this mostly in the context of bigger companies like Shein when they talk about how uh, in the next. 20 years will reduce our emissions by 5% or something. Like, I think the idea that letting companies kind of just get away with stuff because it's like too hard to do it in a better way is, you know, a recipe, especially for bigger companies to just never have those goals be met. Um, but you're right that it's kind of just the way it's set up. Uh, the smaller brands that are more independent and not a giant corporate conglomerate are just always going to suffer more from those rules. So I don't know. I think yeah. it's maybe... From my perspective as a consumer, it's still worth it. Um, but I, I totally get the the hardship of, you know, being hit with the, an unexpected, complete reformulation of your product um, or putting a label that is definitely going to have a negative impact on sales. So uh, yeah. I don't know. It's a tough situation. But your story was great. And thank you for coming on the podcast and talking us through it. Yeah, thank you so much. I uh, also want to thank Jill. Oh, you just popped back up on the video. Jill, thank you <laughs> for being here. My question is, how large does this label have to be? <laughs> can we bury it? Yeah, can like... you do super fine print? <laughs> no. Or is it like on cigarette packs where you have to have like a picture of somebody with no jaw? <laughs> 
You know, actually, um, the rules just changed a few years ago. And you used to be able to just slap a generic sticker that you could like buy from Uline. You could just like put it mm-hmm. on the back of the pack um, that just says it has a chemical. But they actually recently changed it and you have to specifically say what chemical it is. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of work for the brands. And also, I would just call out that this does not just impact brands that are based in California. If you sell into California right. in any way, shape, or form, you also have to be in compliance with this. So all that has to happen is you sell one product on Amazon and it goes into California and you're also subject to the violations. Wow. It's like lesson learned, like uh, planning for 2024, plan- bake a line in there about pop-up lawsuits and just, yeah. just expect it's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Well, thank you guys both for joining. Uh, For those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast, because that helps us out a lot. Um, And don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast, because you'll hear interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday, and we can review episodes like this one every Friday. Um, Jill, do we know who our next guest on the Glossy Podcast is? Yes, it's time for our um, episode that we recorded at our live member Glossy Plus member event. Oh, so yes. we'll have Melissa Lafair Cobb and Michelle Ox, who are from Hervé Leger. And yeah, we went deep on the, the future of the brand under um, newer creative direction. So check it out. And also, I wanted to say, while Lexi was working on her story, a lot of... Uh, a lot more stories regarding beauty brand ingredients um, came out of the wood, woodwork. So follow this space, watch this space. I'm sure we'll have Lexi back to talk about them. I'm sure we will. Um, once again, thank you guys for both being here. And for those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. Bye.